You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Going through the book of Luke together. Taking a deeper look at the person, life, and teachings of Jesus. We actually will be done in about five or six weeks from now. I can't remember which. And today we come to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. A little background before we read. Really, the, the setup to what we're about to read is a, a passage about Jesus talking about his coming in judgment. And prior to that, really beginning in Luke chapter 16, he has been confronted with and confronting these religious leaders called the Pharisees. So we pick up right there where the Pharisees kind of probably facetiously ask Jesus a question, and then Jesus responds with what is not everybody's favorite passage, a passage about judgment. So let's do that. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the gospel of Christ. Most of us hate feeling judged. But many of us don't mind judging others. You don't want your political views to be judged, but you don't mind judging other people's. You don't want your clothing judged, especially when you come to church, but you don't mind thinking in your head about other people's clothing. Pick your preferred group of people and you'll go easier on those whom you count yourself among and go harder on those whom you count yourself against. A lot of talking past each other that we do in our public life as Americans is touched by this most basic idea. We don't like feeling judged, but we don't mind judging others. And so we probably don't like this passage. Whether we're Christian or not Christian, skeptical, searching, this is not a fun passage to read. 
Jesus is calling himself the judge, and he's talking about passing judgment someday. So with gritted teeth, let's go straight at this. Let's have the courage to face what he says. This morning we'll look at the, our ignorance of the judge, the day of the judge, the judgment of the judge, and the appearance of the judge. That's four points. Ignorance of the judge, the day of the judge, the judgment of the judge, and the appearance of the judge. Well, first, our ignorance of the judge. For a few chapters now, Jesus has been criticizing the Pharisees, and so Luke tells us that they asked a question in verse 20, perhaps in spite, or probably not curiosity, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus' response, beginning at the end of verse 20, is that the kingdom of God cannot be observed. What he means is that it really can't be seen, that it's imperceptible. He doesn't mean that it really couldn't be seen, because as we'll see, he's saying he is the king, therefore the kingdom can be observed. What he means is that it's imperceptible in its coming. Like watching paint dry or trying to watch a, a pot of water come to a boil. It's hard to see, and sometimes the more you stare at it, the longer it seems to take. And what Jesus is saying is that's what the kingdom of God in their midst was like. They just didn't, they were imperceptible to Jesus' slow coming. You see, they thought when the kingdom came, as Isaiah prophesied and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when the kingdom came, it'd be obvious. And the true messianic king would come and bring justice and righteousness, and evil would be dealt with. Israel's uh, enemies would be dealt with forever. It would be obvious. It would be like lightning flashing across the sky, as Jesus will tell us in a minute. But Jesus came instead as the incarnate God in human flesh and slowly grew up among them. It was imperceptible to them. And he says, I'm the king. There, for behold, that's not what they'll say. But Jesus says in verse 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He means you plural. He doesn't mean the kingdom of God is in the midst of an individual. He means the kingdom of God is in your midst. I'm the king. I'm here. I'm in your midst. And you haven't noticed. So Jesus provides a distinction that the Pharisees wouldn't have had. Which is to say, when the kingdom came the first time, Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom. He came to start it, to begin to heal diseases and cast out demons and to say, I'm the one who's in charge of the whole earth. And then when he comes again, when he comes the second time, that's when he'll come to consummate the kingdom, to deal with evil once and for all. The Pharisees thought it all happened at once. And Jesus is saying, no, it happens at two different times. He's come to inaugurate the kingdom, to announce it, and then someday he'll come again to consummate it. The theologian Oliver O'Donovan says that the situation of the kingdom we're in right now is that like a widowed queen who is pregnant with the future king. The king is present. We know the king is going to be the king someday, but he's not reigning yet visibly. Like a widowed queen who is pregnant. We too then, like the Pharisees, often ignore the presence of this inaugurated king, this inaugurated judge. That's what kings did, right? Kings judged between right and wrong. Kings executed war like a judge. We often ignore him. If you consult your political team's opinion about a matter before you consult Jesus' reigning ethics, you're probably ignoring the inaugurated king and judge in your midst. If you know the right answer to give someone before you truly listen to them, you're probably ignoring the king and judge in your midst. If you fall in love with theological particulars more than you fall in love with the judge, and you fall in love with minute potential details of theology, especially regarding end times theology, 
You're probably missing the king's reign, the judge's reign in your midst. These are all things the Pharisees did and that religious followers of Jesus still do today. We ignore the judge all the while thinking we speak for his kingdom. So let's not ignore the judge and let's pay attention to his day. Our second point this morning, the day of the judge. This is a word we see throughout the passage here in Luke 17, the word day or days being used. Now theologians debate what Jesus is really talking about here. Some theologians hold that Jesus is describing a temporal judgment that would happen in the first century. Because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, had become so corrupt, God was going to bring a judgment. And the Romans would ransack Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the temple would go away, and the temple would go away to this very day. The Jews haven't had a temple. And a lot of theologians think Jesus is giving a prophecy about that impending judgment 40 years down the road from their time to tell them about this judgment. On the other hand, other theologians say, no, 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 this is, Jesus is teaching about the end times. Jesus is teaching about the final day, the judgment day. And I think it's both. I think Jesus is giving us both a temporal judgment that would happen in the first century, and he's warning about his final coming. Let me show you how I see that. In verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, he's now redirecting his speech away from the Pharisees to the disciples, the days plural, are coming when you will desire to see one of the days, plural, of the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about days, plural. Whenever Jesus means a judgment day, the last day, the final day, he uses judgment day, a singular day. But here at the beginning of his speech to the disciples, he's talking about days, plural, as in there are multiple days of judgment here. At the end of the passage, it's the same idea behind Jesus' examples in verse 34 and 35. You see ordinary couples in a bed or ordinary couples in, or people in the field, and they'll be divided up. These are not verses about some invisible rapture to happen. In fact, the implication behind what Jesus is describing here is that you want to be the person left behind. Back in the, the days of exile, 500 years before this, uh, you know, you want, didn't want to be the person carried off by Babylon into exile. You didn't want to be the person carried off to be pillaged because that was the Lord's judgment. You wanted to be the person who remained. And Jesus is saying about this temporal judgment, hey, I want my disciples to continue spreading around the Roman Empire. I don't want them to be, left be, or I don't want them to be caught up in the judgment. And the Pharisees and Sadducees kind of get erased as political parties when that judgment in A.D. 70 happens, but Jesus' disciples are still left behind, spreading the gospel around the Roman Empire and beyond. Jesus wants us to see that he really is going to bring a judgment to these present religious rulers, and he goes beyond that, and he's also talking about his final judgment. I know this looks confusing, but in verse 26, Jesus uses two Old Testament examples of destruction, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And he says about them both concluding uh, in verse 27 and 29, God destroyed them all. Jesus' conclusion to these examples in verse 30 gives us a window into the final day, the judgment day. What does verse 30 say? So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now I'll speak more about that word revealed in a later point, but it means the final day. It means the final day when Jesus has really come back in Judgment Day, 
to finally judge once and for all the earth. Okay, why is Jesus' prophecy here then? If it's really about a, a, a historical judgment that happened in AD 70 and about the judgment day, why is it so hard to pick out the difference between the two? Why make it so hard to distinguish? I think it's because the temporal judgment and the ultimate judgment take the same shape. The ultimate judgment of Jesus gets bigger the more we pay attention to the judgments we face in our own lives. Like a pirate's spyglass telescope that when extended, the image further away gets bigger in the telescope. So apocalyptic type moments in our lives call to mind the ultimate apocalypse that is to come in Jesus' return. A temporal judgment acts like a telescope to help us see a distant object and make it seem bigger. So whenever we see or experience a judgment or feel a judgment in this life, it helps us understand what the final judgment will look like. And that's the telescope Jesus is providing here. Of the, the judgment they faced in AD 70 looking like the final judgment. What does this mean to us? I think it helps us see all the circumstances of our lives are kind of like a, a spyglass telescope into who God really is. Take it out of the realm of judgment. To, to see the beauty of a mountain ridge or a summer flower is to get a glimpse into God's bigger beauty. And while a summer flower might be temporary, God's beauty is permanent. To experience in the secure intimacy of a loving marriage is to point to the ultimate marriage of Jesus to his people at the end of time in Revelation 19. It's a window, it's a spyglass telescope, and it's saying, whatever this is, what's coming is bigger. And the same is true with judgment. To experience frustration and anger at injustice and ongoing wrongs is a spyglass telescope into the ultimate judgment Jesus will come to bring someday when the days of judgment will become the final day. Use the deep experiences and emotions of your life as a window or a spyglass telescope to see God's heart for you and the world to come more clearly. Now let's get a more clear picture of this judgment with our next point. The judgment of the judge. I've been saying that the shape of temporal judgments helps us see the shape of the final judgment to come. So what is that shape? Well, the days of judgment here that Jesus alludes to are disruptions of preceding days. In verses 26 and 28, when describing these examples of these Genesis examples, all the way back to the first book of the Bible with Noah and with Lot, they're doing the things that normal human beings do. They're eating and drinking, they're getting married, they're buying and selling. They're doing normal things. These aren't bad things. These are the things we do every day. What came before, though, might not be memorable because normal human life is going on, but what came after is the day you won't forget. Years ago, I remember seeing a 60 Minutes special of these people in America. They're actually all over the world, but they were only profiling the Americans. There's only a handful of them. These people have a rare ability. It's called hyperthymesia. And they can remember every single moment of every day and pinpoint it to the exact day. You ask them, what were you doing on October 8th, 1988? And they could tell you. It's a very rare ability. To them, all days can be equally memorable, but that's not how most of us are. You talk to someone over the age of 60, especially someone over the age of 80, and you say, December 7th. And immediately they have a mind recall, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day the day that ultimately brought America into World War II. Speak to anyone over the age of, I'm going to guess, 28, and you say September 11th. 
and your mind will go back to September 11, 2001. The days preceding were different, and a day of judgment, so to speak, a memorable day, is a disruptive day. It's memorable because it was disruptive. Another shape the judgment takes, in addition to being disruptive, is the destruction of evil. As Jesus says in verse 27 and 29, that God destroyed them all. Now, the why of this, Jesus doesn't go much into. In this passage, Jesus is just saying a judgment is coming, and that's why the preceding two chapters are so important. Why is Jesus bringing a judgment? This seems pretty mean. God destroyed them all. You have to remember what he was critiquing the Pharisees for throughout Luke chapter 16 and Luke chapter 17. He critiques them beginning with their greed and their oppression of the poor and their ignorance of the poor. And then he critiques them for kind of letting people off with, you know, easy sexual immorality. And then he critiques them for their glory seeking, the fact that they always wanted the credit, they always wanted to be noticed. These are things that are true of most cultures and most times, and especially in our age. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn reminded us that the line between good and evil does not go between countries, does not go between nations, it does not go between political parties, it goes straight through the heart of every human soul. Glory-seeking, sexual morality, ignorance of the poor, That's what Jesus was critiquing the Pharisees for, and that's what he's coming to bring judgment on. And a world without them all would be a better world. And so if Jesus is going to bring the perfection of heaven to earth on the final day, we'd do well not to have any of those around. So Jesus is going to destroy them. Remember that judgment we see or experience now is a spyglass telescope into the final judgment. That means anytime we experience a disruption... Anytime we, ex- we see or experience the destruction of evil, that is calling to our minds the future and final day. Sometimes you can be on the receiving or giving end of that judgment in a temporal, this earthly sense. None of us like to be on the receiving end of judgment, but sometimes we need it because of the evil in us. We need our colleague to tell us that we're dominating the meeting. We need our spouse to tell us that we're not good listeners We need our friends to tell us that we've been slowly developing a bad habit that we're blind to. We need the judgment of others, and that will feel like a disruption. Sometimes we're on the giving end of judgment. We declare that something is not right. We take unethical practices at work to our HR department. Uh, We are the ones who have the hard conversation with the friend that's going astray. Uh, We are the ones who speak up against injustice done to others. Sometimes we need to be on the giving end of judgment. That is wrong, and I will do something about it. But in order to be the voice of judgment, especially in our culture, we need to be someone who's not afraid to receive it first. Because if we don't receive judgment regularly, then no one's going to want to listen to us when we want to give it. Which also explains why we just shout into the void in our culture today. All these ways we give or receive judgment are many glimpses we have to practice for the final judgment of Jesus. To see what does it look like? If we see any evil destroyed today in us or in someone else, that's a good thing, and that's what Jesus wants to do in eternity. May we long all the more for that day. Finally, let's look at the appearance of the judge. The appearance of the judge. 
Jesus uses his favorite title to describe himself. The phrase that Jesus uses the most in all four Gospels to describe himself is the Son of Man. This goes all the way back to the Daniel 7 reading that we just read. Among many other places you can find it in the Old Testament. Daniel has this prophetic vision and he sees this Son of Man coming down and being given all the authority on earth to be the judge, to judge evil. Interesting that we think of Jesus often as somebody who is loving, compassionate, a healer, and yet his favorite title to describe himself, Son of Man, implies that he's the judge of the earth. And how does he describe when he will come to reign? Verse 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That word, pun intended, is revealing. The word revealing is a revealing word. You get it? Okay. Uh, Because the New Testament often talks about the second coming of Jesus, we often come to think of, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've heard this kind of laid out, we think of the coming of Jesus as somewhere else. Jesus is somewhere else right now. He was on earth. He died. He rose. He ascended into heaven. He's somewhere else. And someday he's going to come back. And yet just as much as the word coming the New Testament often uses the word appearing or revealed to describe Jesus' second coming. As in, Jesus, like the Wizard of Oz, is actually present, and someday he's just going to pull back the curtain of reality, and we're going to see that he was the king and judge all along. That was the word used in our First Peter 4 reading today, that, the, that his glory will be revealed. The veil of Reality will just be pulled back and we'll see things as they really are. Jesus isn't somewhere else. He's omnipresent after all. He's God. Someday we'll just see it. We'll see that he's the king of the world and it'll be revealed, which is incidentally what the word apocalypse means. This is the revelation, the final book of the Bible. It means the apocalypse. And apocalypse just means unveiling. It just means pulling the curtain back, seeing things as they really are. And Jesus is saying, I'm really in charge. I'm really the king. I'm really the judge right now. Which is how any judgment in this life can point to his ultimate judgment. He's behind the throne, pulling the strings, so to speak. Now, I love a good spy thriller. Probably uh, of more action-packed movies, my favorite movies were the Bourne Trilogy. And in the Bourne Trilogy, there are people that we never see until the very end that were always behind the screen, pulling the strings. Bornsey was this trained assassin in this rogue CIA program. And he, at the very beginning, something goes wrong and uh, an assignment goes wrong and he develops amnesia. And he can never remember who he is or what he's supposed to be about until the very end of the movie. And there's, he's always trying to help good people and he's trying to get bad people. And you never know why. And you go through three movies until you finally realize that there were these higher-ups in the government and the CIA pulling the strings behind the throne, knowing what was going on all along, and they, Bourne was a threat to them, and if his identity came out, he would expose them. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is a rogue CIA higher-up. He is good. He is benevolent. He wants to destroy evil. He's judged right now. It's just that we can't see him. And what should be our response? How do we use that future revelatory moment to help us now? 
There's really only one hint of application in our passage where Jesus says in verse 33, the one who seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't fixate on the judgment, fixate on the judge, and don't be afraid to lose what you think you have now. Focus on me. Contemplating the revelation and judgment of Jesus to come helps us practice what is called holy detachment. To look at the things that we have and that we value in our lives, and we say in the presence of God, God, I love my job, but I know that someday I won't be working anymore. God, I love the simple things in life, the electronics I have. I love my phone, I love my AirPods, but these will break too someday. Perhaps even more difficultly, Lord, my family belongs to you. Help me not to cling to them in such a way that it would distract me from you. Holy detachment. Holy detachment. Now, earlier I talked about uh, this spyglass window. Pay attention to the, the deep emotions in you because those are pointing to what we really long for in God. And here sometimes, with holy detachment, sometimes we long for those things too much and we want them instead of God. And so holy detachment helps us Say, God, help me not to cling so much to the things that I'd be willing to lose them so I could get you. Whoever would be willing to lose his life will keep it. You see, we need both the spyglass and the holy detachment. And it's Jesus' cross that helps us pray both those kinds of prayers in our soul. Don't forget that despite all this talk of coming judgment, Jesus hasn't forgotten the judgment he will face, and he didn't deserve to face it. In verse 25, he tells us, But first, he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Despite the fact Jesus has done nothing wrong, he will take the judgment first. Friends, we do all kinds of evil. We ignore the judge, which is its own kind of evil. We don't like his judgments, which is his own kind of evil. Sometimes we perpetrate the evil ourselves And we don't like it. And Jesus will be the substitute atonement for that evil. He will be the one who suffers many things. And he will be the one who is rejected by this generation and all generations. The appearance of the judge only happens after the judge himself takes the judgment on our behalf. Friends, I hope you don't want to ignore this judge. I hope you will want to see his day come and know that his judgments are true and right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.